Lauren. Mike. Lauren, when you buy something using cryptocurrency, do you feel like you're making that transaction anonymously? Oh, when I buy something with cryptocurrency, like when I go up to my morning coffee shop and I open my MetaMask and I'm like, hey, do you guys take BTC or ETH or, you know, Goodcoin? Yes. Uh, no, I don't do any of that. And I, I really haven't thought too much about the anonymous prospects of this. Although I know that's a big part of cryptocurrency, right? It is. The prevailing thought is that if you use it, people wouldn't really know what you're buying or how much you spent or that you even participated in a transaction in the first place. But that is actually kind of a myth. Interesting. Yes. Do you want to hear more about it? I definitely do. Then let's bring on our guest. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And we are joined this week once again by Wired senior writer Andy Greenberg. Andy, welcome back to the show. Thanks to you both for having me on again. It's great to have you back on. So we're talking about cryptocurrency again on today's show, but it's not really in the way that you might expect. Andy, at the end of last year, you published a book. It's called Tracers in the Dark, and it's filled with stories about investigators who have been able to track down criminals by studying their cryptocurrency transactions. These are people who operated on the dark web, places like Silk Road, Alpha Bay, and Welcome to Video, a site where users shared child sex abuse videos. These criminal enterprises were funded and fueled by cryptocurrency, primarily Bitcoin, and now, since Bitcoin has existed, people have been using it to buy and sell all sorts of legal and illegal things online. They may not see that behavior as risky if they're doing something illegal because they're operating under the assumption that Bitcoin transactions are untraceable. Now, that's never really been true, but that belief has persisted anyway. Andy, this myth of anonymity around cryptocurrency is a running theme in your book. How did this myth come to be? Well, I have to admit that I am in some sense a part of it, Mike. Like I, um, I wrote the first print magazine piece about Bitcoin in 2011. Thankfully, in some sense, not for Wired magazine. I worked at Forbes magazine at the time, and you know, I, um, I, I covered this world of like anonymity and hackers and surveillance, and I came upon this new phenomenon, which was described to me. You know, Bitcoin was described to me as a kind of like untraceable, anonymous digital cash for the internet. And I'm talking about like I was I was talking with some of the first Bitcoin developers and even Satoshi Nakamoto, this mysterious creator of Bitcoin, had written in this email to a cryptography mailing list that, uh, among other things, participants can be anonymous in this new like cryptocurrency world that he or she or whoever they are um, was describing. So, you know, I I wrote this this first piece in 2011 and I did describe in this Forbes magazine piece like how this seemed to be a kind of untraceable digital cash like you could put unmarked bills in a briefcase and send them across the internet to anybody without revealing your identity uh, if you were careful it seems and you know of course I, I immediately also was imagining just being the kind of reporter I am that like this was going to unlock a whole world of of like you know, money laundering and online drug deals and, I don't know, like terrorist financing. And that, all of that, in some sense, did come to pass over, you know, the following years because it did seem, you know, it wasn't just me, like even Satoshi Nakamoto believes that Bitcoin and that cryptocurrency, as there became more flavors of cryptocurrency, had these anonymous properties. And it was only, I would say, like, if we fast forward like a whole decade, around 2020, that I started to realize like how completely wrong I was about this. 
how you know not just like the, it, I was a little bit wrong, but like actually one eighty like fully opposite of correct about this that Bitcoin <laughs> is fully traceable, and in fact it is much easier to follow the money if you can kind of crack and decipher the blockchain um, with cryptocurrency than even with traditional finance. It was actually when I started to see the Department of Justice credit this one company, Chainalysis, which is a cryptocurrency tracing firm in one kind of announcement after another, um, I started looking into like this world of investigators who had figured this out much earlier than me. And I saw that this small group of detectives had learned to trace cryptocurrency within law enforcement in many cases, and had used this to take down one massive cyber criminal operation after another over the last 10 years. And that is you know, what uh, that kind of escalating spree of like massive busts and takedowns is what is the story of this book, Tracers in the Dark. Describe in the most accessible way possible how that tracing actually works. Well, I think an even better like way to start thinking about it is like how in the world, Andy, could you have been so stupid as to ever <laughs> think that Bitcoin was untraceable? Because this podcast is now an Andy Greenberg mea culpa. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you know, because the whole notion of Bitcoin is that it is basically backed up and guaranteed by not a bank or a corporation or a government, but the blockchain, this list of every single transaction. So how in the world could you have ever thought that was private when you know those transactions, the notion of the blockchain is that they're copied out to thousands of computers around the world and can't be changed or erased. Uh, but the blockchain only records transactions between Bitcoin addresses. It doesn't have any like, you know, identifying information, it seems to early cryptocurrency users and to me uh, in 2011 or so. But then around 2013, this researcher, Sarah Mickeljohn at the University of California, San Diego, was the first to really look into like whether this is true, that like uh, that the blockchain does provide any privacy or if there was some way to find patterns in this massive collection of data. And she started quickly to find like clever tricks to cluster Bitcoin addresses and to show that sometimes dozens or hundreds or even like millions in some cases of addresses could provably be shown to belong to a single person or service or sometimes like a dark web drug market like the Silk Road, which had come online by that point. And then sometimes you could follow the money from one of those clusters and see Bitcoins move from one address to the next and with other kind of tricks, like figure out which path to take when there was a fork in the road until the money hits a cryptocurrency exchange. And cryptocurrency exchanges are legally required um, by US law anyway, to have know your customer requirements. And they actually do have identifying information on their users. So when people cashed out their Bitcoins, traded them for dollars or vice versa, when they bought their Bitcoins with you know traditional money, you could often get their identifying information with a subpoena. And with this kind of like small collection of tricks, and also another thing she would do is she would kind of like interact undercover with people in the cryptocurrency world. And in doing so, she would sometimes, you know, put money into the Silk Road drug market, for instance, and see which address she had interacted with, and then know that that address was part of a bigger cluster, and so identify that whole cluster. And you know, with this whole collection of this bag of tricks that she created, it started to become clear that actually you could start to identify services on the blockchain and follow the money and in some cases see like real crimes uh, recorded in an indelible, unerasable, unchangeable way um, in this permanent record. 
And uh, it was only after Sarah Mickeljohn and her co-authors at UCSD published that paper that Chainalysis launched, this Danish tech entrepreneur named Michael Groniger created Chainalysis and sort of automated those tricks and built them into this piece of software that was then made available to law enforcement agencies who quickly kind of saw, or not quickly, but you know, bit by bit saw the power of this investigative technique that became a kind of secret super weapon, like a divining rod to track down dark web criminals and all these people who thought that they were invisible when in fact they were anything but. Uh, you know, that's something that that I think is pretty clear when you're reading your book is that there's this sort of cat and mouse cycle where um, criminals are taking greater and greater steps to obfuscate their true identity and law enforcement is getting savvier and savvier at figuring out people's real identities who are doing illegal things on, on the dark web. Um, but we should also note that among all of that, there is still a lot of people, particularly on the consumer end, people buying things on the dark web, uh, who are being really sloppy, right? What sorts of rookie mistakes were people making that led to them getting caught pretty easily? Well, you know, I, I actually, um, when I was writing for Forbes magazine and back in like 2013 at this point, I was kind of obsessed with the Silk Road drug market and I did some test transactions. <laughs> I can now legally say I bought some marijuana for Forbes um, for it, like the sidebar of a story I was writing on the Silk Road where I was interviewing the Dread Pirate Roberts, the administrator of the of that dark web drug market. And um, I was, you know, foolish enough to send, in some cases, Bitcoins directly from my Coinbase wallet to the Silk Road. But then in other cases, I think I did send it through intermediary addresses um, in an attempt to like try to cover my tracks. But when I showed all this to Sarah Mickeljohn, she very easily could trace all of my transactions. And she had done undercover kind of transactions with the Silk Road. She had identified that cluster. So she could easily see like exactly, you know, which drug deals I had done. I think that like, you know, <laughs> this was like kind of, you know, captures the problem, which is that, you know, cryptocurrency users are not that dumb about this. Like we all thought back then that if you were just a little bit clever, you know, of course, like some um, mistakes would reveal your cryptocurrency transactions in the blockchain. But if you were clever, if you just like stayed a step ahead of uh, of the tracers, if you took some obfuscating steps, then you could actually still be more private with cryptocurrency than with like traditional money on the internet. But I think, you know, what Sarah Mickeljohn and then Chainalysis, which is now this actually like $8.6 billion company that has hired every brilliant person they can think of to find these patterns in the blockchain. And what they have shown is that it's a better rule of thumb just to say it's impossible. You will not be able to win this cat and mouse game with at least with Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies that are like it. There are now cryptocurrencies that are designed to be far less traceable than Bitcoin or Ethereum or, you know, those kinds of um, well-known original cryptocurrencies. But the, the problem also with this cat and mouse game is that you can you kind of use the state of the art, the cutting edge obfuscation and anonymity techniques. But somebody, you know, years later can figure out a new trick, you know, to kind of defeat those techniques. And because it's all recorded in the blockchain forever, they can basically go back in time. So like uh, and, and excavate that evidence 
and use it against you, sometimes to prove that you committed a crime. So it's like a cat and mouse game where the cats can like travel back in time to solve the crimes and the mice have to like think years and years ahead into the future, which is basically impossible. So I think it's it's almost better just to think of um, most cryptocurrencies as just completely transparent, which is you know, truly the opposite of what they were promised to be in many cases. And I think it's also fair to describe it as having served as a kind of trap for people seeking financial privacy and lots of criminals who were seduced by this false idea and then found that law enforcement was able to just like turn the lights on and carry out these huge busts where many hundreds of people were arrested. Wow. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Uh, the crypto market has been pretty wild lately. There's all the recent drama with Sam Bankman-Fried and the collapse of the FTX exchange. There's the cratered market around NFTs, the rapid devaluation and erratic behavior of many of the currencies. Andy, have these recent instabilities in the cryptocurrency market at all slowed down the use of it on the dark web or in other illicit markets? You know, I, I don't think that they have for the most part. The one big crime that has kind of slowed down because of the fall in the value of cryptocurrency is scamming because scammers depend on this on people believing that like their cryptocurrency is going to keep going up in value but on the dark web cryptocurrency is really just like a means of transaction and it doesn't really matter so much what it's worth in fact like the fact that bitcoin appreciated massively from the time when i was buying marijuana on the silk road in 2013 really now just means that i spent like tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bitcoins on a few grams of pot, which is kind of unfortunate <laughs> when you think about it. So, but the dark web is not the only place where these crimes that are now traced by the tracers who are the kind of central detectives in my book are taking place. I mean, there are also just straight up thefts um, that are a huge part of the, the dark side of the crypto world. And when FTX collapsed in the midst of that collapse, uh, which was, you know, kind of like a traditional finance story in a way. It's about like an over leveraged bank or something or like a Lehman Brothers or maybe like a kind of Theranos story. But there's also a kind of straight up crime story here where about half a billion dollars of FTX's funds were actually just stolen in the midst of its bankruptcy. And we don't know by whom still. And but but the bizarre thing about the blockchain is that all of these tracers can watch this theft happen in real time. We can see these hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency taken out of FTX and then kind of moved around and uh, they seem to be like being packaged to try to launder them. But because it's all so transparent and traceable, it's going to be very difficult for whoever took that money to cash it out or spend it or, you know, get away with this crime in a way where they won't be identified. And so we'll probably soon know if the person who did that was like some sort of inside embezzler or external hackers who were like trying to take advantage of the chaos of FTX's meltdown. Do you see a mainstream future for some of the more privacy focused coins like Monero? Am I saying that correctly? Monero? Or will they be kept at arm's length by legitimate financial institutions? Yeah, it's really interesting to watch. I mean, Monero um, is one that is being adopted. And Monero, just to like for the people who maybe haven't heard of it, it's not the most popular cryptocurrency by any means, but it is designed to be much less traceable than than Bitcoin and to kind of like tangle up its blockchain and, and obfuscate the amounts and make it 
hard to see who is sending money to whom. And Monero is being adopted by dark web markets. I mean, uh, one of the big stories in this book is the hunt for and the takedown of the kingpin of Alpha Bay, which was this dark web market that became 10 times the size of the Silk Road. And, and now years after Alpha Bay was taken down, it, it actually reappeared in 2021 and now only accepts Monero, which is a kind of sign of, of the cat and mouse game, as Mike put it, that is occurring and the ways that people are starting to wise up to the traceability of, of Bitcoin, at least. But we see that cat and mouse game continuing because it does actually seem like sometimes Monero, you know, much to the surprise of all of these people using it, can sometimes be traced. And Monero people hate it when I point this out. But like in the this big case that happened about a year ago, where these two New Yorkers were arrested and accused of money laundering, you probably heard of this case because the woman that in this couple had posted these like terrible, super cringy rap videos on YouTube. Um, and right. $3.6 billion was seized from this couple, the biggest seizure of money of any kind in US criminal history. Um, they had actually transferred some of that money into Monero. And yet you can see in court documents that the IRS criminal investigators who were the kind of central detectives in that case continued to follow it and to identify them as the, as the ones holding it. And there's actually even a leaked Chainalysis document that appeared on the dark web um, that shows that Chainalysis says to his law enforcement customers that it can trace Monero in you know the majority of cases. So even when people even now believe that they're using a privacy coin, like something that's less traceable, they're often still going to be surprised, I think, by how clever the tracers have become, like how hard it is to use cryptocurrency anonymously. But I feel like I have to also mention that there is a newer cryptocurrency Zcash that does seem to be truly untraceable, that uses these kind of new, almost magical seeming cryptography tricks called zero knowledge proofs to basically fully encrypt its blockchain so that there is no information for blockchain analysis or tracing of any kind. And that may be kind of like finally the untraceable cryptocurrency that people believed Bitcoin was. And, you know, yeah, as you say, Lauren, I mean, it'd be, it's going to be really interesting to see if Zcash is more adopted and if it is, if it becomes this kind of like popular tool for like crime or, you know, what people once called like crypto anarchy, like carving out a space where you can't collect taxes, you can do any black market transaction you want. Like, will that um, lead to some sort of regulatory backlash where, um, you know, regulators try to ban Zcash or prevent exchanges from letting you buy and sell it? Well, I'm definitely not an expert in regulation, but I do think a lot about permanence on the internet. What is permanent and what is not, and how we've sometimes deluded ourselves into thinking that some of the things we do, the actions we take, like using cryptocurrency to make a purchase on the dark web, or even just moving something into the trash on our desktops, that that somehow is untraceable, that something is vanishing, when actually we are laying down you know, these infinitesimal bits, these ones and zeros, that are now like the mesh network of our lives. And it's like really pretty permanent. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, cryptocurrency is like a little parable about how people, I think, think about committing crimes on the internet or just like their privacy, um, that we are all leaving this digital exhaust trail. Uh, and in some cases, you know, you, you can see these in the in the stories of the book as well. Like in one case, the, the administrator of Alphabet was first identified because he leaked his email address um, in a welcome email to the Alphabet user forums. And although we fixed that problem within days, 
years later, an anonymous tipster gave that email address to the DEA. And that's how they first learned his name. They later proved his identity and like, you know, dispelled any doubts and were able to charge him because they traced his cryptocurrency. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we leave these, these breadcrumbs behind that we're not aware of. I just think that it turns out the cryptocurrency is maybe like the most ironic, the, the clearest, craziest example of that, because people really thought that they were invisible. And in fact, they were leaving like totally clear, indelible trails that uh, show every transaction you make for all time. And there are cases where, for instance, like IRS criminal investigations identified the alleged creator of a Bitcoin money laundering service called Bitcoin Fog by tracing his his transactions before he even successfully launched the site um, 10 years earlier. So, you know, it it is just a, a true, you know, as Edward Snowden would say, like a permanent record that for good or ill can be used to solve crimes, but also to expose human behavior in a way that we're really just not ready for. All right. Well, thanks, Andy, for coming on the show and talking about this. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. All right. This is the last segment of our show where each of us recommends something our listeners might like. Andy, you get to go first. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I have to say I was going to recommend a book um, called You Are Not Expected to Understand This, which is a collection of of essays about lines of code that um, my Wired colleague, Lily Hay Newman, contributed to. Um, but Lily, it turns out, already recommended this book on the show. <laughs> I, I, he tells me a couple of weeks ago. So I have to come up with another one. Although I have to say that is a really delightful collection of little parables about um, the history of computing. So I guess instead I will recommend this um, this game that I have been kind of obsessed with for years now called Getting Over It, uh, which is, it seems like uh, completely ridiculous, but I found to be kind of like profound. It, it You basically are this naked man in a pot with a, with a hammer and you have to use this hammer to climb a mountain of, of junk basically. And it's very hard. <laughs> you uh, constantly um, can fall and basically lose all the progress that you have made. There's no, you, you can't die um, in, in any way. There's, there's no like lives. Uh, you, you just sometimes fall and lose like the weeks and weeks of climbing that you have put into the game. And so it's kind of like this, this little um, experiment in extreme frustration. And the creator <laughs> of the game, Bennett Foddy, um, kind of talks to you actually throughout the game telling you like his theories about the nature of failure and frustration and playing like bits of like songs and poetry that are all around the theme of um just like the difficulties of life and um i've just i i find it like almost inspiring in a way and i have actually now played through it hundreds of times i think i'm in like the top five percent of players in terms of how many times i've play through it worldwide. And now my six-year-old son um, has gotten curious about it. And I just sit and watch him play it. And I find that it's like almost like an interesting, or a six-year-old, uh, it's like an interesting practice in like how frustrated uh, can he become and can he tolerate, <laughs> which is like an important thing for a, a kid to figure out. So yeah, getting, getting over it. I recommend it to everyone. Nice. Uh, Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is another work of Andy's, actually. 
we're just recommending each other's work on this podcast. We really do like each other this much. So, here at so incestuous, but I, yes. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. So I know I sometimes make fun of Mike for talking about being vegan, not being vegan itself, just that you talk about it. Uh, but Andy's latest story is going to make you want to avoid eating American raised pork because it has made me vow not to eat any more pork. It's a story about how an animal rights activist group, which Andy has written about before in Wired, has revealed using spy cameras what really happens inside of uh, carbon dioxide stunning chambers, which are used to slaughter pigs. And it's pretty horrific. And food companies have claimed that these CO2 chambers lead to what they would say is painless loss of consciousness and death for the animals. But these videos and Andy's story reveal that for these pigs, the deaths are anything but painless. It's a pretty hard read and the videos are even harder to uh, to watch. But uh, if you can stomach it, I recommend reading that story. Um, and Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, my Perhaps rec recommend some vegan food for us. Yeah, my recommendation is stop eating bacon. <laughs> okay, there you go. You said it so much more simply than I did. Uh, no, I'm going to recommend a book. Uh, it's called Art is Life, and it's by Jerry Saltz, the Pulitzer Prize winning art critic of New York Magazine and just all around fantastic writer. Uh, it is a collection of the last 25 years or so of his essays and criticism and profiles and writing about the art world, um, particularly artists who are challenging some long-held um, beliefs in the art world and artists who are trying new things and stretching the boundaries and artists who he feels are overrated or overexposed in his thoughts about them. If you have any interest in like contemporary art, then you know Jerry Saltz and you know that you should read this book. So I'm just giving you a nudge. You should definitely check it out. It's it's brand new. Uh, I'm consuming the audiobook, So it is kind of fun to hear his voice uh, read back to me the words that I've read before, uh, not knowing what his voice sounds like. Uh, so <laughs> um, I also, uh, I own the book in physical form and it's just as enjoyable in either medium. So that's my recommendation. Art is Life by Jerry Saltz. The other day, you and I were having a Slack conversation about something completely unrelated. I was like, oh, something, something about the Bart from Berkeley. And you just replied with a photo of Jerry Saltz. And you wrote, <laughs> Jerry Saltz, exclamation point. I am currently reading slash listening to his book. Well, because he was on Kara's podcast. Yeah, that's he, great. He was on Kara, Kara Swisher's podcast. Yeah, but you heard about Jerry Saltz here first. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show. Andy, thanks again for joining us. Thanks to you both. It's always fun. Always fun having you on, Andy. Uh, once again, the book is called Tracers in the Dark. It's out now and you can buy it anywhere you book. And you can read some long excerpts of the book on Wired.com, including the stories about the operations to take down Alpha Bay and Welcome to Video. Just check the show notes. We'll link to those there. Thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter and Mastodon. Again, just check the show notes. Our producer is Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week provided all these new chatbot search engines don't take our jobs. Goodbye. <laughs>